Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Giantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our impact series featuring Elevate customers implementing transformative change. In this episode, Jake Hills, Vice President Legal Operations at Elevate, talks with Gareth Hughes, Director of Strategy at the international law firm, Reed Smith. Gareth and Jake talk about implementing widespread change, specifically restructuring law firm processes to meet the needs of today's efficiency-conscious customers. And yes, communication is key. Gareth, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to have this discussion with you. And to help frame our discussion, I would like to start at the beginning of your journey. More specifically, when did you realize that you needed to implement change? Was it a moment in time? Or was it something that was more gradual that you came to understand? Well, I think it's important to understand the key pillars of Reed Smith's business and strategy. They've been pretty consistent for a long time now. Ever since I've been at the firm for six years, we've been talking around driving innovation, embedding technology, and you know, moving forward in terms of our process design. So one of the things that attracted me to the firm, you know, hearing a big law firm talk about process design and talk about continual improvement was pretty exciting for me. And you know, looking back to the early 2000s, Reed Smith had a pioneering legal services center in Pittsburgh. We still do. Huge building. We have data scientists in there. We have practice improvement technology teams. So we had a really great solution and a really great team over there working for quite a long time. For me, it's kind of really in Reed Smith's DNA. Along with some of Elevate's forefathers, Integrion and Axiom as well, they're at the same time. We're all kind of starting up and thinking about this stuff, probably with different focuses and approaches. It's been there for a while. There's always working in an international professional environment. There's always regulatory changes that mean you need to adapt and change. And UK and European arms have been working with that center in Pittsburgh for a really long time, really effectively. Changes in GDPR and other changes meant that we had to think about how we could have a kind of on the ground solution for for this problem and making sure that we're ready to respond to client need. Whatever happens with a regulatory environment, we were quite aware that Brexit was looming, what that would mean for our UK and EU data sharing policy and ability to work across that as well. So there was lots of things kind of bubbling away. But the most important thing, and I think this has been consistent, is that we have a really well-developed client listening program, client insights team. And I read a really interesting report from our head of that client relationship team, which was all about clients telling us what was really important to them. And this was probably three to four years ago. Wasn't what we thought was important to them. We were really focused on cost, efficiency, alternative pricing models. And that is important. And you know, we've got a really great solution. We're really focused on accelerated delivery you know, to get to those outcomes more quickly. You know, lots of them were recognizing that with convergence in big law, that they were having bigger, more complex relationships, kind of multidisciplinary relationships that they hadn't always had. And to find firms that could solve the complex advisory work and also the high volume repeatable work was becoming really important and kind of really challenging. And I think what we saw at the same time was the emergence of ASLPs, challenger firms, big four, who we knew had lots of the right capabilities to solve these problems because they were <laughs> offering us consultancy on how to do it. So we had to really think about how we were going to find that solution and move pretty quickly. That's interesting because it sounds like there's basically these three things that kind of collided at the same time. So you had a successful Pittsburgh center, you had regulatory requirements coming down on you, and then you listened to your customers and your customers were telling you these things that 
really required you to do something different and really required you to put together something new to help serve your customers. Were those the problems that you were trying to address with this solution? Absolutely. We'd seen other firms do really interesting things with delivering that bottom 20% of legal delivery. Again, highly repeatable process-oriented outputs that aren't legal advisory. They are legal administration lenses. But we'd seen firms do really well with that. And we, again, we had a pretty developed US solution for that. But it got pretty exciting for me when our managing partner in Europe, Tamra Box, said, let's think about what a great delivery model is going to look like you know, 10 years from now. Let's think about 2025. And let's see if we can make that happen in three years rather than 10 years. <laughs> um, so terrifying and exciting. And then I get really excited. You know, I've studied postgrad social science, business psychology, change management. So I start thinking, great, Cotter, Cooper Ross, Lewin, all these change models that I've been diligently learning about and making notes about. And then the reality is to use those models, you need the perfect mix of employees and organization to follow these rules. And most firms in reality don't look like this. So we started to look at who could help us essentially. And that's really where we tend to elevate. And we started to think about how we can do things faster and accelerate these outcomes. So you got this mandate to implement something that would normally take 10 years into three years. And so how did you do it? And what was the most challenging aspect of it? We wanted to be systematic in the approach. We wanted to make sure that we could ensure that it was properly embedded and it wasn't a flash in the pan project. Sometimes law firms get a bad rap for that buying the latest technology or coming up with a new brand. And we, we did come up with a new brand, but that was considered and part of it. So we wanted to make sure that whatever we planned was co-designed with experts, external experts, with our partners who are internal experts and you know often times laterals, lots of great ideas and solutions, and also clients. We looked internally and tried to understand what the drivers of performance transformation would look like. We were quite clear that we wanted agile methodology and use Sigma continuing improvement type methodologies. And we've had really good success with that in our IT functions and our legal ops functions as well and our business operations functions. Behind all of that really is define something, measure it, analyze it, and improve it. And I think that's the core of what we wanted to do. We wanted to do it quickly. That was the mandate. The external piece was really important for us because although we are a large, very capable, very confident law firm, I think having a team dedicated to a big transformational change like this is really important. Most law firms run on these 12-month cycles. So when you go to your board and say, we've got a three to five year transformation project, and it's probably going to cost us money for the first three, (laughs) maybe four in professional services, that isn't typical. It's typically, let's buy this software. We've got a new accounting system and the ROI will be done in one year or buy a piece of AI and we'll be using it on litigation in six months. The, The proposition was quite different. We were trying to build. And I think it was real testament to our board and our chiefs that we got pretty unanimous support for that. And we have had throughout the last two and a bit years, really, even with the challenging 2020, we've still been moving forward, which has been fantastic. Was there anything that you experienced along the way that was more challenging than what you expected or something that was surprising to you? I was really surprised by the fact that so much of really complicated legal knowledge just lives in lawyers' heads. And it's probably not surprising to anyone who's worked in KM or being a lawyer. But for me, my background is pricing and pricing strategy. And I remember sitting in meetings with partners saying, okay, well, let's just define the transaction. What does it look like? Step one and step two, and let's price that. And let's look at history. And I never really understood that. Sometimes they were probably panicking, thinking, I don't know what this is going to look like. I have to, <laughs> I have to act like I do, but I don't. So when we said we were going to define all of our processes, we said we were going to build playbooks. I expected we would have a process mapping session. We'd get a nice big whiteboard and some stickers and all of a sudden, we'd have this end-to-end process maps. And it was much, much harder than that. We found that even within smaller teams, there was really 
quite wide ranges to the approach. Inconsistencies is different ways of solving the same problem. But when we're talking about high volume problems, we should really have consistency in those solutions. You know, another thing I thought about when we were, we were struggling initially to get some of this stuff on paper, I did some kind of internet research and I thought there must be somewhere you can buy these playbooks. Someone must be selling this stuff. No one's selling this stuff. You can't get it anywhere. And again, it's because the nuance of law, even at that volume level, is really important. And some of that information made us adapt our plan slightly. I'd had this vision that we would be, anyone could come in. And I think the plan was for me to sit down and attest some of these legal processes. Could I do these legal processes? And actually, it's not quite as simple as that. You know, there is more to it. So that surprised me, but it's been a good learning experience on that front. And I think in terms of how we have documented that information and how we continue to work and develop it, I think it's a really healthy activity for the firm to do and for our lawyers to build into their day-to-day. So what was the result? How did you decide to measure success? Are you achieving success and how's it been today? We have now a center, which is based in Leeds in the UK, which is really our experimental platform for how we do law differently. Some people have called it internally next-gen legal services. Some people are still using the term high volume, which it is both. But we have a team of you know Sigma-trained specialists. So we thought that was quite important to give them a continual improvement kind of education. And it's tailored to law. But instead of the typical 100% of utilization of their time being focused on billing, 50% of their time is focused on improving, which is quite interesting. Again, new for lots of the staff who've worked in other similar centers or worked with law firms in a similar position. But they really enjoy it. Now they get to be creative day by day. They get to solve problems. And demonstrating that continuous improvement is really gratifying, I think, for those people as well. And for me and the others in the firm to see those strides we're making. Obviously, the best bit is telling our clients we can do things better and we've shortened delivery chains or we've cut away steps of waste or whatever you want to say. They're the most satisfying pieces. You know, We hired our first ever head of legal engineering, a term we hadn't used in the firm before. I know other firms do use that term. That role is really focused on keeping us aligned to change, keeping us focused on continuous improvement. And I think even just thinking back five years ago that we would hire that type of role and have that position based not in one of our kind of head offices in London is a pretty significant change for us. The best bit really, the most gratifying way, I think would be that the partners have really supported throughout, bought into this, given up lots of free time. At one point, we had a standing meeting every Friday morning at 8 a.m trying to bribe the partners with breakfast. And we had some really interesting debates from, you know, what do our engagement terms look like? It was a really complicated, minutiae kind of type changes to big picture, where we would be in 10, 20 years time. And those partners who have sat around that table, there's probably 20 or 30 of them in London, but you know, much, much wider base across our global platform are now not just interested in how we can deliver law differently and that bottom 20%. They're much more focused on getting pricing right for clients, on value-based pricing for clients, on asking those questions to clients of how do you want this to be delivered? What are the critical elements that you need to have first? Can we re-engineer, repurpose, reorient the way we deliver this stuff to make it more valuable to you? And they're questions that I don't think most partners would have asked just a couple of years ago. So I think that's been a really great result. We're not there yet. We've still got work to do. We've developed, I think, 12 core service lines and they have individual service line pricing for each one. Aim of that really is to ramp up speed of delivery, simplicity for our partners and clients to understand. I think this year we're looking to roll that up to 24 to 27. So it's been a good indicator of the appetite that's been seen around the firm and from clients. That's interesting. So you talked about how you had to sell this to the board and sell this to the partners and how that was a bit of a challenge because it's not something that's done everywhere. You came to this idea with the commitment that this team is only going to bill half their time. So how was that conversation that you're saying, we're going to do something that hasn't 
really been done a lot of places. And this team is only going to build their time 50% of the time. And the other 50% is going to be committed to continuous improvement. So how did that conversation go? And how did you respond to any questions you may have had? I do remember a quite nervy presentation to all the partners standing up, being ready with the slide, which was, here is the 50% utilization model, and here is the 50% CI model. And there was a few kind of you know, squinted eyes and tilts of the head. But then you know, the next slide was, this is what clients are asking for. This solves a big problem we've got in our business, which is clients don't want to pay for us to reinvent the wheel. They want to see us moving faster and they want to see us moving to you know, the next generation of transports. So they don't want to see the same thing again and again. We had some really good, really positive and constructive debates about what that would mean. And I talked earlier on around the cycle for ROI on this project being quite long. You know, We could have maybe tried to shortcut some of that by going further afield with a lower cost base, trying to deliver some of this stuff. But again, I think what we heard consistently was that you know, making sure that we could do this in a way that was really aligned to our culture, not a big cultural gap in how we were delivering this stuff in the first phase, even if it came at a greater cost to the business. Refreshing for me to hear that the partners weren't just chasing how can we make a bigger percentage on what we already do. That wasn't the goal. The goal was, I think it's the Trevor Fraud type model, which is better for less, which I love. We use it all the time. How can we be better for our clients? How can we charge them less? And how can we be more aligned to what they need? And I think everything within that CI portion of continuous improvement for that 50% of the time is really, really focused on that. These kind of legal delivery chains are really complicated, as we all know. Even the simplest task that we have in one of our practice groups, which we give to the paralegal, requires a lot of thinking, requires a lot of experience sometimes, lots of different interactions. That's only getting more complicated as we have more technology, we have more complicated client needs more complicated regulatory environments, to set that baseline now and say, we are always going to be focused on improving. We're not going to stand still. And watch as the costs just increase and pass that on to our clients, I think was absolutely the right decision to make. And it continues to be the case. I think that's a pretty forward-thinking concept. I think what you said was, how can we charge our customers less? And I think that's a kind of a new way of, of thinking. And it speaks, I think, to the customer centricity that you've spoken about. It sounds like you're basically responding to a lot of the customer needs or your client needs in building this center. And so have you had any feedback from your clients? Have you had any feedback about how the success of it or what they've been able to accomplish? Most of this work is bundled up into bigger, more complicated matters. And our goal is really for, our, for this to be completely seamless for our clients. So historically, when post-completion used to drag on for six weeks or Bibling used to come across in different formats because different paralegals were doing it. The consistency and the kind of brand delivery that we can present on that stuff improves. So you know that's the type of thing that we're really trying to drive at with clients. And we've had some really nice feedback saying that we are getting slicker on that stuff. Coming back to the acceleration point, every time we've delivered something ahead of schedule or ahead of the expectations for a client, it just lands so well for our external customers and clients and our internal customers as a team. You know, our partners, our partnership, which helps us drive further adoption. It's been really well received. So it's only going to expand further as we have more service lines to deliver on. Good. Well, that goes to the next question that I have. What is the expected longer term impact? What are the next services you plan to offer out of the center? I think back to the earlier point on growth in client relationships. You know, That's the strategy and focus for lots of firms as globalization increases and firms becoming more international. These bigger relationships are more complicated to handle. And I think that making sure that we think about client-centric service lines. We MEFs ensuring that when a client has a need, we don't think in you know narrow channels of, these are our practice groups. We just have this service line for this practice group because it's the bottom 20%. When a big company comes to us and says, we've got a problem or we ask them what their problems are, 
we're ready to pivot. And I think having that base in Leeds and Pittsburgh, where we have all these type of different roles, again, back to the data scientist, legal engineer type roles, where we can brainstorm and innovate on those problems, I think that's a really helpful thing to have. So again, it's back to that kind of adaptability point. When a client brings us a problem and says, can you help us solve this? I think four to five years ago, it would have been much harder than today when we have all this kind of infrastructure and this partnership with Elevate, which helps us think about these problems in place. And I think that makes a massive difference. Further afield, there's going to be lots of changes, I think, to our business, to many businesses in terms of the shift in talent strategy. Adaptability is a really key part of our lives now. And it's key to our project, as I've probably said a few times, <laughs> a key word at the moment. And I think having flexible teams who we can scale up and scale down quickly, that's one of the elements that we've built under that umbrella. It is new to us. Historically, we may have gone out to third parties to or hire temporary paralegals or, or hire temporary junior associates. But to have someone come in and see there's these playbooks, there's a whole infrastructure in place, there's an ethos and culture that is totally aligned to the firm's core values, but is slightly to one side and maybe a bit cooler and more interesting. It might make you stick around a bit longer. Future readiness is a big part of what we're thinking about on the project, not just in terms of operations, but people and what they expect. It sounds like you're also looking for different types of people. I mean, you mentioned data scientists, you mentioned legal engineering. Are you expanding beyond just what people think of when they think of a lawyer or a paralegal to look at different types of folks that you want to bring into the center to be able to be more adaptable? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things to think about is the changing expectations of the forthcoming pipe talent generation. I think it's going to be very different to what we've experienced for the last 10 years and maybe radically different to what we've had for the last 30 years. We've seen lots of data around people wanting shorter tenures at firms. They want more change. They want mid-career breaks. Um, I think it's really important that we are thinking about roles that change and grow. And I think having that continuous improvement in a role, for me, gives you that freshness, gives you that ability to say, okay, I've got a, you know, I've got a project and I want to deliver something and I want to get some gratification from it. I want to demonstrate my value to the firm and to myself. I want to learn something and then I'm going to move on to the next thing. Whereas sometimes the traditional model, you've always got that element, but I guess it's just a smaller portion of it. Sometimes you have to go above and beyond your typical hours to do that stuff. Having it really baked into the core role, I think is quite interesting. And we've had great feedback from the people that we've been able to hire. We've got some really cool people on the ground in Leeds who we're enjoying working with. And we actually expected probably like more of a accelerated talent cycle through that we haven't seen. We thought people would be <laughs> staying with us for 12 months and then say, I'm bored of this now. What's next? I go to the next firm. And actually people are kind of enjoying it more than we expected. So we've got a longer tenure, which is great because it means that we train people and keep them and learn from them as they learn from us. It's the evolution of the lawyer, right? We've talked about it before as a T-shaped lawyer. You're not looking for just the traditional route that a lawyer would take joining a law firm and staying with that law firm forever. What kind of advice, if someone was out there finishing up their training, just thinking about going to become a lawyer, what advice would you give that person? As I said, things are changing. I think some people historically may have had some fear around being pigeonholed as a lawyer. I mean, stuck in law for life, pros and cons to that. But actually, I think there's definitely ways and not just within our firm, within the ASLPs, within the other forward thinking internationals. Now, there's the ability to learn and train in Sigma and other things as well that you can take across to other practices and other disciplines. We talk to our new staff about that during the onboarding and during the hiring process. And I think that should be really exciting for people because probably something we didn't all have 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> Pick your discipline and stick in it for life, basically. Right. So um, yeah, I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think the ability to work more flexibly, work internationally and virtually as well is a key part of that. So I think it's really exciting. A little bit jealous, actually, that people get to go through this choice right now. And I know you've sprinkled this in here throughout, but is there anything about implementing this change 
that was surprising to you or anything that you thought that was unexpected across the whole process of implementing this center? Honestly, for me, just how quickly the partnership got on board and committed, I expected more resistance. I think professional staff can sometimes underestimate partners' ability to adapt or willingness to adapt and also to be you know, really commercially savvy. But as soon as it's driven by clients, it makes a massive difference. So I think that was really, really interesting. And again, very rarely have we had challenging or difficult conversations around the goal, the strategy, the tactics that we're employing. Most of the challenge has been, can we not go faster? Yeah, I think that's pretty surprising. Again, surprising for me to learn just how different the ASLPs are, you know, especially learning a bit more about Elevate, how they operate, two sides of law and professional support learn from each other. And it's great that I think we're doing that collaboratively. So I think that's pretty gratifying as well. And so I'm curious, if I'm working at a law firm today and I'm thinking about implementing this, what advice would you give me? What would you tell me how to start this process? First of all, Jake, you got the job. If you want to come work for our law firm, you're great. <laughs> but I think, um, no, I think seriously, you need to make sure you have buy-in across the partner level. You need to make sure that you communicate, over-communicate. Some of this stuff changes really, really quickly. We had a project plan in 2018 that by 2019 looked radically different. Then we've been operating for a year and it looks different again. And if you miss that communication point, all of a sudden people think that it's a disjointed strategy or things aren't properly aligned. And that's not the case. It's an adaptable and it's something that adaptable project that we're constantly evolving and learning from. So I guess take it back to mistakes because I think that's a good thing to talk about is you know not communicating enough. Sometimes you can get really embedded in a project and you think, gosh, like I'm sending these weekly updates and we have these weekly video blogs and we keep sending photographs of our new staff in the center working collaboratively. And you think, oh, I'm just bombarding these partners with information, but they're so busy. They pick up 50% of them. You can't underestimate getting that communication point right. And I think continuing to focus on that. You know, one of the things that was great when we were all in the office was the ability to run around and knock on doors and just catch people for five minutes and some of that's a little bit harder virtually. So this last year, some of that's been more challenging than it was historically. If you were to do it all again, would there be anything that you would do differently? Yeah, I think we would still be partnering with Elevator, an external provider. I think that's really resulted in great value for us in terms of the speed. Whenever someone says do something in three years, you know, it takes a little bit longer. So maybe we may, may have shortened that cycle again. We may have been more ambitious with that. You know, for me, just the previous points on communication is really important. More communication, stronger communication. The elements of including our clients and working with external providers has been the right choice. Absolutely. I think more of that would be great. Again, constantly surprised by the industry's ability to collaborate between ASLPs. I still have really great conversations with Cognia Law, who helped advise us in some of the early stages and Elevate. And you know, to be able to talk to both those parties and also to talk to the clients and partners around the firm has been really important. So I think um, more communication. Communication and understanding what your clients' needs are, making sure that is heard throughout the law firm. You can't build this stuff in a box. Some elements have to be worked upon and thought about with a smaller group. You can't wait too long to start to spread those ideas and socialize those ideas and change. I think the first time we said to the partners that we were going to be having these Sigma specialists, people maybe fell off their chairs. What's a Sigma specialist? What does that mean? What does that mean to our clients? What does that mean to the SRA? We had to go through all these different steps and make sure that everyone was on board, that we'd done all our diligence and it was correctly considered. But that's changed, right? Yeah. Gareth, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I think we covered a lot of ground. We learned about what we could do differently and how the law firm would be able to kick something like this off the ground. So thank you very much for joining me. Great stuff. Thank you. 
Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com. 